0: Good morning it's good to see you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord and to have this opportunity to share in this time of worship and of study and we it's my prayer that the study of the morning will be encouraging to you as as preparing it has been to me. Um, we have been studying. The, uh, from the uh, book of Isaiah, from the prophecies of Isaiah. It's turned on, okay. There we go. And we're going to continue that study this morning in Isaiah chapter 40. So if you have a Bible and want to turn along, I think all the scriptures will be in the, uh, in the presentation. So um, hopefully those, the screens will be readable so you can follow along there. So just a quick uh, uh, review of what we've studied so far. So again, Isaiah prophesied approximately 750 years after the giving of the law of Moses and 750 years before Christ. So if you look at the time between Moses and Christ, Isaiah falls right in the middle. And so it's almost a period of transition as Isaiah looks back to the children of Israel and the things that had happened to them, and he looks forward to the time that Christ will arrive upon the earth and the the blessings of God that would be revealed through him. Isaiah prophesied from approximately 739 B.C. to 684 B.C., and so his his, uh, time of his work spanned the reigns of five different kings of Judah. Uh, The book of Isaiah is referred to many times as the fifth gospel because there are so many prophecies of Christ that we find here. Uh, They're woven into the prophecies of Isaiah and specifically beginning in chapter 40 and going to the end to, to chapter 66, it's almost exclusively, the prophecies are almost exclusively about the coming Christ and his kingdom. 230 years after David was the time of, of uh, Isaiah and 192 years before the king, I'm sorry, after the kingdom divided and 700 years approximately again before Christ. Uh, but during his, the time of his prophesying, Israel would be taken captive by Assyria and Judah would be taken captive by Babylon some hundred years later. And of course, if you're if you're familiar, which I'm sure most of most everyone is, with the divided kingdom of Israel, that the tribes to the north were known as Israel, the tribes to the south were known as Judah. And so that explains the, um, the different times of their captivity. We know that Israel, when it was taken captive by Assyria, never returned as a people. But God um, would have Judah return. God would uh, take care of of them, so that a remnant would return from Babylon to fulfill the promises that God had made both to Abraham and to David concerning the Messiah, that he would come through their descendants. And the first eleven chapters we we studied um, not exhaustively, but we went through them per- fairly closely, and we talked about the different themes that we find here, the unfaithful state of Judah and Israel and the coming judgment that Isaiah prophesied upon them. The unholy alliance of Israel and Syria, and Israel's pending captivity. And we also talked about the deliverance of Judah from Assyria, how Assyria would have taken captive those of Judah also, but that God prevented it. In fact, the Bible describes that Assyria was right at the throat of Jerusalem, and of destroying them and taking them captive by God's providence, they were, they were saved um, through the miraculous works and the power of God. The return of the remnant uh, it was an, is another theme that we find throughout Isaiah. The return of the remnant, that they were going to be taken into captivity, into Babylonian captivity, but a remnant of them was going to return, which would form the nucleus of spiritual Israel that we find that begins in the New Testament. <clears throat> and woven throughout those those first first uh, first twelve chapters we see the prophecies of the Messiah. the first one we find in Isaiah chapter six we see Isaiah who is brought in a vision into the throne throne room of God and he sees the glorified Christ upon the throne and and uh, and he's given a commission there to go and to to speak to Israel and to to proclaim the word of God and and specifically regarding their repentance and, and the judgment that was to come upon them. <clears throat> the sign of Emmanuel we find in Isaiah chapter 7, when the king of that time of Judah was seeking counsel, worldly counsel, and he, he refused the counsel of God, but Isaiah gave him a sign from God nevertheless. And that was the promise that in, in God's time that a virgin would have a child and that his name would be called Emmanuel which was God with us, the promise, again, of the Messiah, the Christ, and how he would come into the world. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 9, we find the incredible writings there about, Unto us a child is born unto us a son is given. Again, more detail about the Christ and his character and his kingdom and his reign. And we talked extensively about that. In chapter 11, we talked about the branch of Jesse. That basically Judah or Israel would be, would be like a forest who had just been cut down and there were only stumps left. But out of the stump of Jesse, <clears throat> being that uh, the line of the kings of David would come, would sprout basically a tree. And that tree, that branch was Christ and that he would, he would have his kingdom and his kingdom would be eternal. And then the last time we, we studied, we talked from Isaiah chapter 12, that is a song of joy and praise. And it talks about in that day that these things, these are the things that you're going to rejoice in and sing about, which is in the day of Christ, which is in the day, in the time period that we live now. And since the time of Christ. <clears throat> now, jumping ahead. So the next 22 chapters of Isaiah. Uh, are basically judge, uh, ju- pronouncing judgment on the nations around Israel. So uh, the, specifically the nations that are identified here are Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Syria, Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Phoenicia, and, Jeru- and Jerusalem also. So the judgments that are coming upon Jerusalem, God also pronounces here. And again, it's a very, um, it's a very dark description of these nations and how they have failed in their sins and the judgment that God is going to bring upon them. And it, um, you know, it, it's, it's almost, it's difficult to read some of, some of the, the prophecies as you go through there. But, you know, something that's interesting to me is when you think about um, the Old Testament, and you think about God's, the writings of the Old Testament and how God had chosen the children of of Abraham, specifically because of the promise that God had made that through his descendants, the Messiah would come. But we, we think about Israel as God's chosen people, and it, it seems like that maybe God didn't pay attention or remember all the other nations around him, and and nothing could be further from the truth. And I think that's one of the things that this bears out, that God was always aware of what was going on in all of these other nations. It wasn't that God couldn't see or didn't have time to deal with them, also, He did. But we know that in Romans chapter 1, because of their rejection of God, that God basically allowed them to go their own way and to uh, follow their own means, and, and that led them to a, a, a terrible place um, before the arrival of Christ. <clears throat> but God was always aware of them, and God was always. Um, you know God influenced the nations around Israel through their interactions with Israel, whether it was because they had conflict and they they had wars with Israel or it was because of people who actually um, I- encountered them individually people who were who were men and women of God you know and I think back to the uh the example of naaman and and how you know the the Syrians had gone into Israel and they had taken captive certain people out of Israel, and one of them was a, a servant girl who who served in in uh, in Naaman's household, and Naaman was a a captain over the armies of Syria. And how when he became when he had leprosy, that she were, she told him that she she was concerned about him, even though she was a captive, but basically a slave, <clears throat> to say there you know there's a prophet in Israel who can help you, and we found that you know through that account which we don't have time to go into. In detail today, but basically, he reached out and he received healing from Elijah <clears throat> or Elisha because of the uh, because of this this young servant girl who was of Israel who had an influence on this captain of Syria. And so we find that, uh, accounts like that throughout the Old Testament that God was that God was influencing and, and preparing the Gentiles at the same time that he was preparing the Jewish people, the Israelites, uh, for the coming Messiah, and for the time that we would all uh, be joined as a people of God, who were the spiritual descendants of Abraham through Christ. And then chapters 35 through 39 is basically a historical narrative uh, that basically it's a step away from the, uh, the, pro- the prophecies, these, these prophecies about these these kingdoms and the judgment that God was bringing. And it goes to specific, specifically to Hezekiah. And it, and it, 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 it uh, is around the time that Assyria again is, is threatening Jerusalem and they're mar- marching on Jerusalem. And Hezekiah prays to God at the urging of Isaiah. And God, God delivers them. God delivers, again, Jerusalem from Assyria. And, and Assyria's army is basically wiped out by the angel of the Lord, that 185,000 are killed in one night because of some illness or disease that God brought upon them. And, and God had told the king of Assyria, you know, who was very pompous and arrogant and who, who boasted himself against the God of Israel, he said, I'm, I'm going to put a hook in your nose and I'm going to turn you around you're going to go right back where you came from. And that's exactly what happened. And Jerusalem, Jerusalem was, was spared. And Hezekiah and the people rejoiced at this. And then we found that Hezekiah falls falls sick. And God tells him, your days are numbered. You're about to the end of your life. And we see Hezekiah again goes to God in prayer. And he prays for an extension of his time here. And God hears his prayer. And he extends Hezekiah's life for some 15 years. And following that, the king of Babylon. Now Babylon really hasn't come into the picture yet as far as a world power. Assyria Again, was the great world power at this time, <clears throat> but the king of Babylon, who's out here on the horizon, who's been identified as as a threat to, Jude, to uh, Judah, to the tribes to the south, that that was the nation that would eventually take them captive. The king of Babylon reaches out to Hezekiah, and he says, "I heard that you were sick, and we're glad that you're healed, and and they sent gifts, and they send an entourage, and." Hezekiah is great. is happy to see them, and he gives them a tour of the palace and of, of all the treasures of, Jer- of Jerusalem and of the, the, uh, the Jewish people. And then Isaiah hears about this, and he said, is this true? Did you show him all these things? And he says, yes. And he said, he said understand that the Babylonians in the future are going to come, and all these things you showed them, they're going to take them. They're not going to leave a single thing here. Of those things of of value in the temple and of the treasures, he said they're going to take them all. And not only that, they're going to destroy the city, and they're going to take many of your people captive. And that's the way that chapter 39 ends, with this this prophecy of Isaiah about the coming destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. And And then we come to chapter 40, and then all of a sudden... Chapter 40, um, verse through 66, the the tone changes. The tone completely changes. Uh, Some of the themes that we'll find through these last uh, chapters are, first of all, that there are several times that people are identified by God as my servant. And one of those is is, uh, the nation of Israel, who is the deaf and the dumb servant of God. And then there's the specific identification of Cyrus who would be the uh, the ultimate king of the Medes and the Persians who would destroy the Babylonians and he also is identified as God's servant some 150 years before he even appears on the scene he's named by name in Isaiah which is a remarkable one of the remarkable things in the book of Isaiah that he specifically names this person who's going to be a king And who's going to ultimately be the destroyer of Babylon. Um, The prophecies of these chapters are almost exclusively fulfilled in Christ. So again, the fifth gospel. And as we go through these, you'll see the themes that point to the gospel and and the kingdom of God. And the things that are fulfilled in the New Testament. And finally, these chapters are quoted at least 37 times in the New Testament. So there's quotes from either from either Jesus or the apostles or the writers in the New Testament that quote uh, these chapters frequently. So Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1 says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, uh, says your God. So again, we, we go from the end of chapter 39 where, where Isaiah is, is describing this destruction, these, this affliction that is going to come upon the Jewish people, at the hands of the Babylonians. And and now he tells Isaiah to take a different tone. Up to this point again, it's been it's been judgment and it's been condemnation of, of their, their ways and the things they've done, the judgment that God's going to bring upon them, and a call to repentance. And now God says, Isaiah, speak comfort to them, speak comfort to my people. And so as we go through this chapter, I would just want to notice the things that Isaiah tells us that should comfort us as the people of God and the first thing I want to notice here is that he says comfort yes comfort my people so speaking comfort to his people and you know we think about the children of Israel the Jewish people again and by and large they had they had forsaken God by and large they had rejected God yet God refers to them refers to them as my people, and specifically to to that remnant of his people. To those, you know, there were still, even though they had lost their way by and large, there were still faithful men and women in Israel. And you know, when we see this, when they're eventually taken captive by the Babylonians and people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and those those his fellows who were faithful to God even in that time of captivity, and they were representative of the, the other probably thousands of everyday men and women who were faithful to God throughout this time. And he says, speak comfort to them. You know, it's also a comfort to us to know that we are God's people. You know, First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Who is... Peter, writing to, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who have been born again in Jesus Christ. And he's identifying, he says, you are God's own special people. He said that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. So, people from every nation under heaven who are Christians, who are born again into the family of God. Are God's special people that were not a people before but now are the most special people because we're the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now you have obtained mercy he said blessed be the God second Corinthians I'm sorry now we're going to move on to comfort so God is the God of comfort first of all it's comforting the first thing we notice about comfort is we're comforted because we know we're the people of God in Christ Jesus we are God's people God wants to comfort His people. God's word has always been for the purpose of of comforting His people, even in, in um, its reprimands to hit to people, in in its judgments on people, in the actions of people. The Scripture tells us that you know a father chastens his son. A, a parents, we we discipline our children. Why? Because we love them. Because we want what's best for them. And it's the same with God. That God chastens people. He chastens his people because he wants what's best for us. He wants us to live the most joyous and happy life which is found in Christ and in, in obeying his commands and that's what he, he's directing us, always directing us to. But he, he, he desires to comfort us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us, comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So there's a lot of words about comfort there. And basically what it says, true comfort comes from God. That our true place of comfort comes from God. And even as we comfort each other, the, the way we comfort each other is by what? Through the word of God, by expressing the promises of God and the, and the word of God one to each other. <clears throat> For whatever things, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, talking about the writings of the Old Testament, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Where does the comfort come from? It comes from God's word. It comes from the scriptures, which reveals to us the character of God, the things that God has planned for us, God's love for us, all of those things. That is where our comfort comes from. And so, Isaiah Did I skip a? Yeah, I skipped a screen there. For whatever things were written before... I'm sorry, I didn't skip that. We went to that one. Okay, speak comfort. Um, So as we go through this chapter, we're going to talk about basically three... uh, There's three main themes here. Number one is the end of bondage and the forgiveness of sins. So that's the first comforting thing that Isaiah is going to speak to the people is basically the coming of the Messiah and the the end of their bondage and the forgiveness of sins. The second thing he's going to remind them of is that God is in control. He's going to remind them of the power of God wh- of whom we serve and in, whom's, in whose promises we trust. And finally, he's going to remind them and comfort them to remind them that God provides their strength, that in t- through times of adversity that God is going to provide <clears throat> our strength. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 2 says, Speak comfort." To Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. So he says, Cry out to Jerusalem, cry out to, to the children of Israel. Why? Because you know what, what did Isaiah just tell him? Guess what? You're gonna be in bondage, you're gonna be you're gonna be taken into captivity. For some 70 years they were gonna be in captivity. And now Isaiah is looking beyond that. And he's describing their deliverance from that time. <clears throat> and so there's two things he talks about here. Number one, he says your warfare is ended. And that's, that's basically describing an engagement or a time of, of, uh, of um, conflict that they would be in. And spef- specifically, this is talking about physical Israel being in that, in that bondage, in that uh, captivity in Babylon. And he says, rejoice, he says, comfort them and tell them that this is ended, it's going to come to an end, there's a time that this this hardship that you're going to endure is going to come to an end and be comforted in knowing that, that God's going to bring you through that and there's going to be an end to that. And the second thing he says is that her iniquity is pardoned or her sins are forgiven. We know that under the law of Moses there was no true forgiveness of sins and so what Isaiah is pointing toward here is that the forgiveness that was going to come through Christ. So, again, it's looking well beyond that 150 year period from then, 170 year period that would lead to their captivity and ultimately their return, the end of their bondage. But the, the greater comfort was that their sins, there would be a forgiveness of their sins. <clears throat> He says, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. That's an interesting concept that Isaiah describes when we think about that. What does he mean that there's, for she the has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. <clears throat> the time of that bondage was going to end and there was going to be forgiveness of sins. So what do we think about? So think about when we sin, what happens? There's consequences. There are consequences from sin. We see that in our own lives. We see that in the lives of other people. We certainly see it in the scripture, in the, in the history of Israel. That bondage they were going into was what? It was a consequence of their sin and specifically their loss, their loss of trust in God. They're turning to the nations around them for their security They're changing the image of God into an idol. They they had fallen into idolatry and and the worshiping of of idols like the nations around them. And there was a consequence to that. And that consequence was God was going to allow them to basically be destroyed. That their city was going to be destroyed. They were going to go into captivity. But beyond that was the true payment for sin that would be made by the descendant of Abraham and of David, that being the Messiah, who would take the sins of all time upon himself and pay and really pay the price for sin. And so you can see there's there's double there's double, I guess, at the Lord's hand we all receive double, don't we, for our sins. There's consequences, but there's also the true payment for those sins that we find in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> And then he says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. We recognize that, don't we? (laughs) We recognize that verse. This is Isaiah, 700 plus years before John the Baptist would, would identify himself as whom Isaiah was speaking about. What's he doing? He's preparing the world for Christ. He's preparing the world for the arrival of the Messiah, in Isaiah, speaking about that time when, when sin would be forgiven, the things that would be comforting to them and to us also, he identifies <clears throat> he identifies the announcement that the Christ has arrived, that the kingdom of God is at hand, and he says, "Prepare the way of the Lord, make it make straight in the desert a highway for our God." So we think, what's he do? What's he talking about? He's talking about. You know when the king came into a certain location or a city, they would they would clear the path, right? They would they would uh, fill in the the low places of the road, and they would make sure it was smooth for the king to travel on. And that's kind of what the description is here to make it straight. The king is coming. <clears throat> make the road straight. Make it smooth for him to travel on when he when he arrives. So they're make to make preparation for it for every. Valleys shall be exalted or raised, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. It will be smoothed out. The crooked places will be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So he's announcing the coming of the king, and he's describing the work of John the Baptist. Now, was John the Baptist out there working on the roads? (laughs) No, he wasn't, was he? What was John doing? He was preaching to people. What was he telling them? He was telling them, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Those, that road that he was describing was men's hearts. He was saying, You prepare men's hearts. You prepare people to receive the cross, to receive the Messiah, to receive the King. He says, Because the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. The glory of the Lord in his, in his Christ, in his Son who came to earth. <clears throat> The coming of the Messiah is what he's announcing. This is what they would take great comfort in. This is what we take great comfort in. He says, In all flesh shall see it together. Not just the Jewish people, all people. That Christ came to pay the sins of all people of all time. To gather us together in one one people in him as we talked about. He says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You know, the other thing this reminds me of as I read this verse is I think about <clears throat> what the Apostle Paul said when he describing Christ and that, that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ at some point. And he says, and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to, be, to confess. All flesh will see the glory of God. We'll see his Messiah. will see his Christ. We'll see the fulfillment of his promises. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and with it and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So we read, you recognize that verse too, don't you? From the New Testament. Is quoted several times in the New Testament by the writers. And what is what's it talking about? What's, what's, what's the comforting words in this from Isaiah? Number one, what he's telling us is, you know, everybody here is temporary. We're just people. We're here at the pleasure of God. But our life here is, as James said, is like a vapor that appears for a little while and then it disappears. <clears throat> Youth and beauty is fleeting. <clears throat> But what is, what stands forever? God is forever. The permanent thing is God and his word. These things stand forever. These things are unchanging. This is where your comfort is. This is where your anchor is in the things that are eternal. And so, you know, the other thing that stands out to me here too is is he talks about the breath of the Lord blowing on people, basically, that that that's what... um, scatters the, the wilted flowers and the, and the dry grass as, as it's cut. Um, the, the importance of the breath of God. Um, you know, we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and what does it tell us? That God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. The life that we have is by, by God. It's from the breath of God. That's what makes us a living soul is what the scripture tells us. <clears throat> Also, we read in the New Testament, the Scripture tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into every good work. So going to the first part of that, all Scripture, all the words of the Bible are given by the inspiration of God. And what is that? We know that that means they are God-breathed. The Word of God... The words of the Scripture are God-breathed. And finally, uh, the Apostle Peter quoted this verse um, in, uh, in his writings, and he, he specifically identified it with the rebirth that we have in Christ. And he said, we're not born of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, that being by the Word of God, <clears throat> that God-breathed. Word of God, that word of life, we in is life. That is where our security is. That is where our comfort is. Knowing that the promises of God are eternal, they're unchanging. Don't put your trust in people or in men or in the wisdom of men, but let, that, let it be founded in the comfort that we find in God's word. Verse 9 says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, You bring good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Uh, Think about real quickly what he says here. O Zion, you who bring good tidings. He He repeats that phrase twice. Good tidings. What does that remind us of? The good news. The good news of the gospel. What is he saying? He's saying, Jerusalem, shout from the mountaintops. The good news of God. Behold your God in the person of Jesus Christ. Behold the the power of God and the salvation of God that comes with the Messiah. And that that voice, the beginning of that proclamation would be from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion. Behold the Lord shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold his reward is with him and his work before him. Behold the Lord, he says, his work is before him, the work of salvation. And the work of, a, of eventual judgment for those who don't escape it through his salvation. His arm will rule for, will rule for him. He will rule with a strong arm. The power of God in all his might. His reward is with him. Again, it reminds, me, it reminds us of a verse in Revelation chapter 22 where Jesus said, And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to every man according to his work. Again, a, 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 an evident um, description of Christ and his, his coming and, and the gospel that he would proclaim. <clears throat> Verse 11 says, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young, describing again Christ, who would rule with a mighty arm, but who would take tender care of his people who would provide for them and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who were young the gentle loving compassionate love of Christ that we experience in him and again something we certainly see fulfilled in the new testament in the in the words of Jesus that he is the good shepherd now we turn we go to the second portion of this and and I know uh, this is getting lengthy so I'll I'll try to to, uh, to quickly go through this, but, but try to cover it at the same time. <clears throat> Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. What's Isaiah describing? He's describing the power of God. So the second thing we take comfort in is the power of God and that his ability to fulfill all the promises that he makes us, right? And that we, again, that he is eternal and and again, to just, just to make a, to describe basically his power. And he says, who can hold the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand? Nobody, except for God. But he, how big is God? Do we limit the power of God when we face affliction and we don't think that maybe God's strong enough to, to bring us through that or to bring us out of that? That's kind of what Isaiah is doing. He's giving comfort to them because you're going to go through this period of affliction We in our lives are going to go through periods of trouble and of affliction and of hardship. But understand that God, whom we rely on, holds the waters of the seas and the rivers and the oceans in the palm of his hand. That's how great our God is. He says he measures heaven with a span. A span being the the distance between my thumb and the end of my little finger. (laughs) That's a span. That's how God measures the universe. with the span. And he calculates uh, the dust of the earth in a measure. He, he can tell you how many grains of sand there are up on the earth. He, he could measure it. He can weigh the mountains in, in scales and the hills in a balance, in a scale. Uh, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who has, counsel, who has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? rhetorical questions who no one <clears throat> God is all wisdom God needs no counselor God needs no instructor God is the giver of all wisdom and all knowledge behold the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales look he lifts up the owls as a little thing and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn or it's be sufficient for a burnt offering what's he saying these nations around, that, around you that you are fearful of, he said, to God, there is nothing. They're a drop in the bucket. They are nothing compared to God, to, to his power, to his wisdom. <clears throat> he says, Lebanon, the forests of Lebanon, if you took all of those forests and you set them on fire, and you took all of the beasts and you offered them as a burnt offering, they would be insufficient to what God is worthy of. <clears throat> He said, All nations before him are as nothing and counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. We don't, God doesn't need the wisdom of man. You could put all the wisdom of people together and of all the nations of all time. And you know what? We couldn't offer anything to God as far as knowledge or wisdom or strength or anything that he would need. He has no need of us, yet he loves us. And yet the scripture tells us he considers us. <clears throat> To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare him to? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. So the wealthy person has a stone image carved as his God the person who doesn't have that kind of wealth takes a tree, a cedar tree or something that won't rot and has someone carve it for him. That's how you would, that's your image of God is what he's saying. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits upon the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So again, just a description of the power of God, the, the, the immense power of God and, and the, how it's not comparable to anything that we could con- conceive. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will blow in them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away. Every, The wisdom of, of men is temporary, but the wisdom, the power the word of God, again, is eternal. To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might, of his great might and the strength of his power, and not a one is missing. What's he talking about? He's talking about the heavens. When you, He says, you want to you get a description of the power of God? Go out and look at the heavens. Look at all those stars, all the galaxies out there in the universe. Uh, I just looked this up because I don't know how many stars there are. They estimate there are 100 billion stars up there. And what what does the scripture say about them? God names every one of them. That's beyond our comprehension, isn't it? That God would have a name for every one of those stars and a purpose for every single one of them. And he considers them all and he keeps them all to their purpose. That's, over, that's overwhelming, isn't it? That's overwhelming to us as human beings that, that, that to have that kind of ability and that kind of power to, to be able to do that. <clears throat> and he says, not a one is missing. Not a one is missing. <clears throat> and then he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? <clears throat> How many people are on the earth today? I don't know. There's quite a few. There's several billion, right? <clears throat> it would be easy for us to consider ourselves lost in the shuffle as far as God's concerned. <clears throat> that God, can't, God doesn't see my plight. God doesn't see my affliction. God doesn't consider me. But what he's saying is, yes, he does. <clears throat> he who counts the stars and names them all knows your name too. He knows your problems, too. He knows your mind, too. He cares about you. <clears throat> your way is not, you're, you're not hidden from God. But you know, this is what, going into this time of adversity that, that, that Judah was headed into, where they were going to be in captivity, there were going to be times that they th- would think that God had forgotten them, that God didn't see them and that God didn't care. And what what Isaiah is telling them, be comforted. <clears throat> Don't limit the power of your God. Don't think that he doesn't see. Don't think that he doesn't understand because he does. And he says, Have you not known and heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He neither faints nor is weary. <clears throat> when I get to the end of the day, <laughs> my mind is tired. <laughs> You know, just by the little things that I have to go through in a day and the things that I deal with, and I need to rest. But you know what? Isaiah says, God is not like us. Don't assume that because something is beyond your power or control that it is beyond his. It's not. You can't even imagine the power and the strength and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He neither faints nor is weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. It's beyond our comprehension. Just trust. Trust. Just believe. Believe in the promises of his word. Don't put your trust in the temporary things. Put your trust in the eternal. And know that God is there and that he cares. The scripture tells us that we cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. <clears throat> he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, but the young men and the young men shall utterly fail. We're human beings, we're frail humanity, we have a limited amount that we can do, but God is not limited. And what does he say? He gives strength to the weak. He He gives might to increase the strength of those who have no might. And finally, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. The final verse of this chapter is we think about the comfort that Isaiah gives to us when we go through adversity and hard times, which we all will in our lives. Jesus said, I give my peace to you. He said, in the world, you're going to have travail. You're going to have problems. He said, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Jesus has not promised us the absence of adversity, but Jesus has promised us The strength to bring us through those adversity. The peace of mind that knowing through those adversity that he is with us. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. To wait upon the Lord. To wait upon the Lord means to trust in the Lord through those times. Not to turn to our own devices or our own will. But to be faithful to him. To his love. To his commandments. To his instructions. To his promises, being faithful in those times is is to wait upon the Lord and knowing and have this promise that he gives us that they who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. (laughs) We go from the depths to soaring like eagles. He said they'll run and not be weary, they'll walk and not faint. In all the times of life, whether it is a time that we need to soar or a time that we just need to plod through the everyday events of the day, God will provide us, when we wait upon him, the strength in all those times. We'll conclude there. Never knowing the minds of those present, if there's one this morning who's never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we could assist you in that, if you would choose to do that at this time, or if we could help you with prayer in any other way, we we would invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. Yeah,